Thank you, Harry. Appreciate it. Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I know it's Monday. It's been a long weekend. You guys are a little tired. I understand. But it is uh, a pleasure to be here. Uh, I don't get to often come to the Master's College, and it is my joy to join you this morning. Uh, just as Harry said, on, on kind of a special Monday, uh, we are coming out of Easter weekend where we have taken the time to reflect on all that God has done for us. You know, it's a unique Monday. Uh, you've spent the weekend reflecting and remembering the cross and reflecting and remembering the resurrection. And I think it's good for us to reflect, isn't it? I think it's good for us to take time and Think back 2,000 years to that day when Christ hung on the cross and then two days later, three days later when he rose from the grave and secured our eternal redemption. It's good to reflect on those things. And, and even as Harry gives my, my biography, I reflect on all that God has done in my life. And I'm reminded of the goodness and kindness of God. Do you know who John Newton is? How many of you know who John Newton is? And you can raise your hand. This is school. Like, we can raise our hands. It's okay. Okay, most of you do. John Newton wrote what song? Amazing Grace. Do you know what John Newton did before he was writing hymns such as Amazing Grace? Slave trader. Okay, I was really hoping you guys didn't know. It kind of ruins everything. No, but John Newton was a slave trader. Uh, he grew up with a father who was very harsh, a father who was a sailor, and, and sailors are, are known for being the most crude, vile individuals in the world. And this is the environment that John Newton was raised in. When he was 11 years old, his father dragged him aboard a ship, and he began sailing. And he hated it. He hated it. And over time, as John Newton was around these sailors and he was in this environment, his heart just grew cold and callous and hard. And his wickedness and his depravity came out more and more until he found himself shuttling other human beings back and forth across the seas, selling them into slavery. Is there anything more vile than to sell another human being into slavery. John Newton was the very definition of depravity, of wickedness. But somewhere along that journey, he is radically converted. He's told the gospel, and he believes, and his heart changes. And the, the man who was once a slave trader, he becomes a pastor and an ardent abolitionist, and he fights for the rest of his life to see slavery abolished. And you see, John Newton, because the, the contrast with his former life and his latter life was so strong, he vowed never to forget. Never to forget where he came from. A month before he died, he wrote these words. 
it is a great thing to die. And when flesh and heart fail to have God for the strength of our heart and our portion forever. I know whom I have believed and he is able to keep that which I have committed against that great day. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me that day. See, John Newton, as he would reflect on his life, as he would look back and see where he had come from and, and how wicked of a person he was and how God had radically transformed him, he vowed that he would never forget. And so for the rest of his life, during his tenure as a pastor, he would keep a Bible verse on the door of his study so that every time he would enter, he would be reminded of who he was before he came to Christ. Above the door of his study were these words, Thou shalt remember that thou was a bondsman, a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Deuteronomy 15, 15. John Newton vowed he would never forget. So over his doorway, he kept a command from God to remember. To remember. It's a powerful command, and it's the same command that we will see in our passage this morning. So if you would, if you have your Bibles, open up to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 8 to 20. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 20. Before we dive into our passage, I just want to give you a little bit of background of the book of Galatians. Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul after his first missionary journey. So Paul, he he has returned from a missionary journey in which he visits the region of Galatia in Asia Minor, and he travels around these cities and he plants these churches and he's sharing the gospel with anyone that will listen. At every step of the way he is challenged by Judaizers, by these these proclaiming Christians who hold fast the Mosaic law and he is stoned almost to death. He is beaten. He is almost arrested. He is cast out of cities. But the gospel spreads. And when he leaves this region, he leaves these churches that have been planted that are, are thriving under the teaching of of Paul and the teaching of God's word. But when he returns to his home base in Syrian Antioch, he starts to receive reports. He received these reports that the churches that he has just founded, they are, they're struggling. You see, it appears that what happened is after Paul left, these other teachers came in and they began to teach a different gospel than the one Paul teached. These false teachers, we would call them Judaizers, they taught that that believing in Christ and putting your faith in Christ wasn't enough. You also needed to be circumcised. You needed to hold fast to the Mosaic law. And so Paul, he he is mortified at these developments in these churches because he knows that faith in Christ is enough. It's all you need. And he recognizes that, that these spiritual children of his, they are in peril. And so he writes this letter to these churches in Galatians. And in it, he will defend the gospel. And he will defend it in three parts. In churches one, in verse, chapters 1 and 2, 
he defends the gospel's origins. And he argues that the gospel, it's not man's gospel, but it was given to him through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapters 3 and 4, he will defend the gospel of grace, and he will argue that man is justified by faith alone, and not by works. It's the gospel of grace. And in chapters 5 and 6, he will defend gospel freedom, where he will argue that for those who have put their faith in Christ, they have been set free. They are free from sin, they are free from the law, and now they are free to truly love God and love one another. And so this book, Galatians, it's, it's a book about freedom. And in our passage, Paul has just finished his theological treatise where he's diving into the Old Testament and he's proclaiming the gospel of grace, showing that even in the Old Testament, it was always by grace. And he goes at great lengths to argue this. And then we come to verse 8, where Paul, the theologian, he steps aside and Paul, the pastor, enters. You see, in this passage, we're going to see the pastoral heart of Paul. We're going to see his love and his care for his spiritual children. He even likens himself to their spiritual mother. And in this text, he's going to passionately call them to remember. To remember. And you see, it's a call that you and I, we ought to also pay attention to. We also need to remember. You see, as you sit in your seat, a master's college student, you are in a uniquely dangerous situation. Because you are incredibly blessed. You listen to probably half a dozen sermons every week, whether you like it or not. You go to class and you study the Bible. Do you know how rare it is to go to class and study the Bible? When I went to school, I had professors telling me that the Bible wasn't real, that Christianity was more like a disease than anything else. And yet you go to these classes, you go to these chapels, you go to church on Sunday, and you hear the gospel explained so eloquently and so clearly and so deeply, and you are bombarded with these profound truths on almost a daily basis. And you're in danger. Because, you see, we as humans, we have this unique ability to take what is so deep and so amazing and so profound, and we have the ability to forget it, to grow cold to it, to, to let our hearts be hardened to it. Yesterday, you celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I wonder if when I say to you, he is risen, he is risen indeed, if the needle of your heart even moves. I mean, do you feel the weight that the Son of God hung on a cross, bore your sin, your shame, your wrath, and died for you? Or have you heard that message so many times that it just doesn't feel like anything anymore? You see, we need to remember because we, we who are so blessed to hear the word of God so well preached over and over again, we are in danger of forgetting and growing apathetic to it. And so my goal for you this morning is as we go through this text that you would be stirred up to remember. That you would remember the impact that the gospel has had on your life. That it would reignite your heart and your passion 
for God and for Christ and for his word and that you would go forth desiring to serve him, desiring to know Christ more and more deeply each and every day. So if you have your Bibles open, Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8, read with me as I read aloud. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So in this text, Paul calls the Galatians, and he calls us to remember. And the first thing he calls us to remember is our former slavery, our former slavery. And we see that in verses 8 to 11. Paul says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's reminding the Galatians of their past life before Christ. See, in this region of Galatia, they would have been involved in pagan idolatry and emperor worship. So they were worshiping wood idols and the emperor of Rome. They were engaged in false religion. It's all they knew. But these idols, they had no power to save. And so he goes on in verse 9 and he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, he speaks of their salvation, something that God had foreordained in eternity past. He says, How can you turn back? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? It's a simple flow of thought. He says, you did not know God, and you were slaves. But you have come to know God, or rather, he has come to know you. Therefore, and he asks a profound question, how can you turn back? How can you turn back? He says, you observe observe days and months 
and years. He's referring to the Jewish feasts. You see these Galatians, they were being told they had to follow the Mosaic law. They had to follow all the rites and rituals of this law in order to be saved. The problem is all they were doing by keeping these rules and regulations as they were enslaving themselves to the law. You see, any religion that is based on works, it reduces a relationship to a ritual. And so Paul, in verse 11, he says that I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. He is so perplexed that he fears his evangelistic efforts have been in vain, that they are all for naught. You see, the Galatians, they suffered from forgetfulness. They forgot their former slavery, and they were turning back to it. It's a condition that we all suffer from. We are all forgetful. We all suffer from forgetfulness. And we see this throughout the Bible. We see this in the Old Testament as well. And, and just to show you uh, the insanity of turning back to slavery, I want you to flip back in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, and I just want to set the scene for you. We find ourselves with the Israelites as they are leaving Mount Sinai. Now, it took them about three months to travel from Egypt to Mount Sinai. They were at Mount Sinai for another 11 months. And so it's approximately 14 months after the Exodus. And listen to what happens. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 11, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. We see the grumbling of a people who had forgotten. These people had seen the most magnificent works in all of human history. Over the past year and a half, they had seen the ten plagues descend on the nation of Egypt. They had seen the Red Sea parted. They had seen manna, literally bread, falling from heaven to feed them. They saw water gushing out of the rock so that they could drink. And then at Mount Sinai, they saw the living God descend down on the mountain in fire and smoke and thunder in such a mighty display that Exodus tells us that the whole mountain trembled. I mean, they have seen the mighty hand of God reach down and bend creation to his will so that he might humble the mightiest nation on all the earth, the nation of Egypt, and rescue his people. 
And yet despite seeing all of that, 14 months later, they missed the leeks and the onions. Onions aren't even that good. But they miss the onions. You see, they have so forgotten how awful their subjugation and their slavery was that all they can think about is the hunger in their stomachs and the onions and leeks and cucumbers that they once had. They have forgotten. And you see, like the Israelites, the Galatians, they had forgotten. They forgot their former slavery and they were choosing idols and works over the living God in a relationship with him. The Galatians were choosing slavery over freedom. And you see, we do the very same thing. We are just like the Galatians. We are just like the Israelites. We return to our slavery. What is it that enslaves you? What is your idol? We all have them. We all have idols in our hearts. And you see, an idol, it's not always a small wooden sculpted figure. It's not always something tangible that you can hold in your hands. Maybe it's this overwhelming desire for success in a good career. Maybe you so desire marriage and being loved and adored by someone else that it's all you can think about and it consumes your mind. Maybe it's being popular and being admired, being liked by those around you. Maybe it's good works. Maybe your idol is thinking that you have to earn your good standing before God. Maybe your idol is that sin that is so tempting and seems like it tastes so sweet. That sin that you commit in the dark where you think no one sees you, where you think no one ever knows. I'll tell you what my idol is. My idol is that I would finish the sermon and walk down the stage and that you would come up to me and say, that was a great sermon. You did such a good job. You're such a good preacher. Now, I've heard enough of my preaching to know that that won't happen. But that's what I want. I want to be honored. I want glory that is not mine. It's my idol. It's that thing that that tries to take the throne of my heart away from God. And you see, anything that displaces God from the throne of your heart is an idol. You see, the problem with idols is no matter how tempting they seem, all they offer is shackles. There is no freedom in idolatry. There is only shackles. There's only slavery. And so Paul, he calls you to remember your former slavery. Remember what it was like before you knew Christ. Remember the bondage that you were in. The shackles that you felt as you were consumed by your sin or you were consumed by that thing that you so desired. But once you finally had it, you found that it didn't satisfy. And then you met Christ. And you tasted what true 
freedom was, Paul would say, remember that. Remember your former slavery and don't go back to it. As we move on in the passage, the second thing that Paul calls us to remember is when you first believed. When you first believed. He says in verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He says, you did me no wrong. Now, what does that mean? What is Paul talking about? Well, remember, when Paul came to Galatia, he came as a Gentile. Though Paul grew up a Jew, and though he was a Pharisee, and though he grew up following the Mosaic Law, he had rejected that past. He rejected all of it. He rejected his former life. He counted it all for naught for the surpassing sake of knowing Christ, and he became as a Gentile, and he came to these Galatian believers as a Gentile. He became as they were. But now what's happening? Now the Galatians are trying to be Jewish. It's almost like they've reversed roles. And Paul is saying, don't become as I was, become as I am. He says, I was enslaved before, and you are enslaving yourselves to the very same thing. Become as I am, a free man in Christ. It's an imperative command, become as I am. It means return to Christ. Reject your former slavery. He goes on in verse 13 to say that you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now scholars will debate what that ailment was. Some will say that he had contracted malaria. And that going up into these higher elevations where these Galatian cities were, it, it made it easier to recover. Uh, some will say, as we see, he says that, that they would have plucked their eyes out and given it to him. It, it must have been an eye disease or an eye illness that he had. And so there's all, there, there's this, all this debate raging. It doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't tell us what the ailment was. What's important is how they receive him. You see, they receive him in the most loving and gracious and sacrificial way. And Paul's reminding them of that. And you see, they didn't receive Paul because they loved Paul so much or, or because he was easy to get along with. In fact, he admits that his presence was a trial to them. So why did they receive him with open arms? It's because he brought the gospel to them. You see, they loved the message of the gospel. They were so profoundly impacted by the truth of Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, that they were overflowing with love and affection for Paul, the man who had brought them this message that they had never heard. And so despite how much of a trial he was, and despite the fact that he was a burden to them, they love him because they love the gospel. And Paul is saying, remember when you first heard the gospel. Remember when you first believed it, how much joy and love you had for it, how much joy and love overflowed to me because of your heart for Christ. He's telling them to remember when they first believed. Do you remember when you first believed? For some of you, it's a moment that you can look back and you can pinpoint in time and you can say, that is when I came to faith. 
in Christ. That's when I believe. Some of you don't have a moment. Some of you, it's over a span of time, and you would have a difficult time pinpointing it. But there's these moments etched in our memory that bring up these strong and powerful emotions when we first believe. I remember when I first understood election and the sovereignty of God and, and the depths to which Christ had to go to save me. See, I, I grew up as Arminian as Arminian could be. I didn't know that's what it was, but I did believe that I had to choose to put my faith in Christ. I believed that I had played a role in my salvation. And it wasn't until college when a friend introduced me to this word called predestination. I couldn't have, I couldn't have even spelt it at the time. And I was so convinced that it was the most ludicrous thing I had ever heard. And so I set out to prove this friend wrong. I said, predestination is not in the Bible, and I will prove it to you. But as it turns out, when you look for predestination in the Bible, it's everywhere. And this began a, a process of several months of just wrestling with this truth that I was seeing in the Bible that I thought was so unfair, that I had never heard, that I had never believed. It was not what I knew, and I hated it for a long time. But I remember this moment. One day after work, I stayed behind because I was listening to a sermon by John Piper. And he gives this illustration of salvation, and he says, there's two options. You've fallen off a boat, and you're sinking, and you're drowning, and, and Jesus is in the boat, and he tosses you a life preserver, and you, you grab onto the life preserver, and you swim yourself to shore, and you're saved. And then he goes on, and he says, there's another option. You've fallen in the water. You've tried with all your might to stay afloat, but you are just tired and exhausted, and you begin to sink. And you let out that last breath, and you are hopeless. You are done. But then Jesus dives in the water, and he wraps his arm around you, and he drags you to the shore. He pulls you onto the beach, and he kneels beside you, and he begins to give you CPR, and he resuscitates you. And just as you cough out that water, and just as you take in that first breath, Jesus falls dead beside you because of the physical exertion it required to save you. And then John Piper asks that simple question, which one of those describes your salvation? And I remember just sitting in front of that computer screen with tears falling down my cheeks as I finally understood how I had been saved. As I finally understood the depths of Christ's love for me that he would give his life to save me. And I remember, and I can look back at that time, and I'm so grateful for that emotional experience because it reminds me of the depths of Christ's love for me. And so I wonder if you have a moment like that that you remember. I wonder if you have a moment where you just felt the chains of sin slide off your shoulders as you realize you didn't have to earn a right standing before God. As you finally let go of trying to earn your salvation. As you finally let go of the things that you were trying to, to attain to satisfy you. Do you remember when you first believed? 
or have you forgotten it? You see, why, why would you turn from that? Why would you turn from such a beautiful Savior, such a beautiful salvation, and go back to slavery? Why would you live another day trying to earn your own salvation through your own works? Why would you put your hope or your satisfaction in anything else in this life? Remember that moment when you first believed. Now I know for some of you, you don't have a moment like that. Because there are some of you in this room who have not yet known Christ savingly. You know all the right answers. You know what the Bible says, but you have never put your faith in Christ. You have never let go. You have never experienced true freedom. So I would urge you this morning to believe on Christ. Experience true freedom. Stop trying to earn it. Remember your former slavery. Remember when you first believed the gospel. And finally, Paul calls us to remember what it is to be a son of God. To be a son of God. We see this in the remainder of our section as we flip back to Galatians chapter 4. We see that he says in verse 17, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. And then he goes on, and, and we see really the heart of Paul and what he desires for his, his spiritual children. In verse 19, he says, I am in anguish again until Christ is formed in you. See, he's calling the Galatians to remember what it is to be a son or a daughter of God. A son or a daughter of God. So the question is, what does it mean to be a son of God? What does it mean to have Christ formed in you? Well, Romans tells us that we have been predestined to be conformed into the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then this same Paul who wrote Galatians writes in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, it is by beholding Christ that we become like Him. Now, none of you have ever met my father. Uh, my father's name is also George. And for those who know me and who know my father, they would tell you that we are very similar. We talk the same way. We have the same mannerisms. We even have the same gait. We like the same things. We have the same interests. I am very much like my father. But it's because as I grew up, I watched him. I, I would live my life looking to my father mimicking him, studying him, listening to the way he talked, seeing the way he acted, And over time, the more I beheld him, the more I picked up those traits that defined him. You see, there's this simple principle that we become 
what we behold. Because I beheld my father growing up, I have become very much like him. Now don't you think that we ought to behold Christ, the only perfect human being that has ever lived? If the central command, if the central purpose of a Christian is to be like Christ, to conform to his image, then ought we not behold him every day? You see, what Paul desires for his spiritual children and what I desire for you is that you would love Christ so much that you would want every day to open your Bible and read about him. That you would want to be on your knees in prayer so that you can talk to him. That you would want so badly to be like him. That you would want so badly for your life to look like his life. That you would study him. I mean, have you ever thought about what Jesus' favorite food was? Have you ever thought about what made him laugh? Have you ever thought about what his hobbies were? Have you ever thought deeply about the words that he says, that the words we have recorded in Scripture? How much time do you spend pondering your Savior? I think we would all say we want to be like Christ. But do we do the very thing we need to do to be like him? It is, be, it is by beholding Christ that we become like him. I want to finish with a simple question. And the question is, how were you saved? It's a question that all of you in this room have had to answer a number of times. And I know that you know the right answers. I know that most of you could probably come up here and write down a biblical theology of salvation for me. And you are so fortunate that you can, but I wonder if you believe what you know. You see, I wonder if over time your heart has grown cold to the gospel. In Crossroads at Grace Church, Austin has taken us through Hebrews, and he goes through these warning passages where we are told that we are prone to wander, that there is a danger of drifting away. And students, for you at the Master's College, where you hear the gospel over and over and over again, you, more than anyone else, you are in danger of drifting. Because it's so easy to forget when you first believed. It's so easy to forget the power of that message. It becomes so easy to become apathetic to the things of God. It becomes so easy for what we hear on Sundays to become routine. It becomes so easy to hear that Jesus loves me and died for me and, and, and feel nothing. But as we wrap up this Easter weekend and as we enter into a new week, I would encourage you to remember to spend some time reflecting on all that God has done in your life. Remember your former slavery. Remember your life before Christ. And then take time to remember that moment when you first believed, when you first loved Christ, and then remember that you are a child of the King. That you have been set free from your sin. 
that you've been set free from seeking satisfaction in the things of this world that are temporary and at the end of the age will burn. You see, if you are in Christ, you have been given true freedom. So why would you ever go back? Why would you ever go back? Remember Christ. And going forward, love him every day. Behold him and become like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you saw fit to communicate to us through written word. We thank you for men like Paul who recorded your gospel so accurately for us. We thank you for Easter. We thank you for the reminder every year that we who were once slaves have been set free by the precious, precious blood of Christ. God, won't you help us to remember that? Help us to remember what it was like to not know your son. What it was like to try and live and earn our own salvation. Oh, would you stir in our hearts a passion for your son that we might live for him each and every day? Would you show us Christ more clearly than we have ever seen him? And would you conform us to his image? Father, we pray all of these things in the precious, precious name of Christ. Amen.